This is hell. I can't help. Starting to hear myself. What is going on? We'll investigate. Yeah, I'm having a little bit of difficulty on my end hearing myself. That's very weird. I will fix this now. I think you're good on uh, I am good now. Thank you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to start the week. So, to the best of our knowledge, throughout human history, there has always been war. And as civilian victims of wars raging around the world right now would tell you, this is hell civilian deaths outnumber those of the military in modern warfare they always do with technological advances in weaponry when it comes to its ability to kill more and more people it had been hoped that arms could be developed and produced that would be more precise for decades weapons makers have been working on so-called smart weaponry that would protect unarmed civilians from wars that are beyond their control, wars they likely oppose as dumb bombs are being dropped upon them. Then there's the soldiers fighting in the wars, putting their lives at risk. Drone and other remote technology could be employed, it was thought, that could also cause a decrease in the number of injured and killed during wartime, especially civilians. When it comes to public safety and national security, improved surveillance systems could it was thought, become the perfect defense preventing any surprise attack at all. It makes perfect sense. If we are always going to have war, why not make it as safe for the general population as possible while putting preventative defensive measures in place to avoid future wars? Yet the greatest achievement in its field, if you want to call it that, was the Israeli border wall, the barrier between them and Gaza. And somehow Israel was caught completely off guard with its military slow to respond after Hamas breached that multi-billion dollar wall in 80 different places on October 7th. The costly high-tech defenses did nothing to stop the low-tech assault. Israel is claiming this is their 9-11, which is arguable, but both events were high-tech failures of expensive weapons, security, and surveillance systems that are very profitable for the global military-industrial complex. In Israel, like in the U.S., the high-tech solutions failed. And once they did, they both unleashed their less precise, not-so-smart weapons in a way that critics have called indiscriminate. In a few minutes, we will consider what the barrier wall represented while it was intact and operational, and what of that still stands, stands for today when we speak with surveillance and digital rights scholar and writer, Sophia Goodfriend, who posted the Baffler magazine article, Blunt Force, Precision Warfare Does Not Exist. Sophia is a PhD candidate in anthropology at Duke University and Fulbright Hayes dissertation fellow with expertise in surveillance and digital rights in Israel and Palestine. Her academic work examines the ethics and impact of new surveillance technologies. She is currently based in Tel Aviv. Sophia also works as an independent researcher with civil society organizations in the Middle East and as a freelance journalist. Her writing on warfare, automation, and digital rights has appeared in Foreign Policy, The Baffler, Plus 972 Magazine, The Boston Review, among other outlets. She also has a Master's in Social Sciences from the University of Chicago and a BA in American Studies, summa cum laude, from Tufts University. You can follow her on Twitter at SOPGood. 
S-O-P-Good. You can find out more about Sophia at her website, sophiagoodfriend.com. Producing this episode of This Is Hell is Dan Kugler. Dan, how was your weekend? Pretty good. I uh, Actually, yesterday a friend of mine reached out to me that he had tickets to see Wilco tonight at the Metro, and I haven't seen Wilco or the Metro for years, so <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. I haven't been to the Metro for a really long time. I haven't been there since the Ginger Man turned into the GM bar. G-Man. G-Man bar. Yeah, yeah, I never figured out that change. Uh, the, the ownership change, and they had to change the name because somebody else had the Ginger Man somewhere. I was enough. just told that over the weekend. <laughs> yeah, you learn every, you learn something every week at office hours. Who's uh, sitting in with you? Uh, we've got Christian Colfan here, uh, and he's a producer in training. And uh, you want to say a few words? Chris, welcome to the show. How was your weekend? Uh, pretty good. Nothing special. Um, went to a Halloween party, and on the L, I saw a guy dressed up as Borat in a bikini. So that was pretty trembling walking <laughs> into that. But, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a very chill weekend, though. Not too bad. Are you sure that person knew it was Halloween and they don't just dress like that all the time? Wow, that's, he would be very unforgettable on the red line <laughs> if he did, that's for sure. So. My weekend is starting to disappear again. That is, I never have time off from work because work is staying on top of the news. And you may have noticed lately that staying on top of the news is worse than usual, and it's usually pretty bad. But if you are like me, and I hope you are not like me, you wake up every morning, and one of the first things you do is check the breaking news to see if anything truly awful happened while... You were sleeping, and lately, every day I wake up, the news is bad and getting worse. We appear to be verging on World War III, but nobody seems to care, as between stories of death and destruction, harbingers of an apocalypse, there are stories of celebrities hawking lotions that make them ageless and get rid of their wrinkles, and tabloid gossip about what rich and famous person is seeing what other rich and famous person at least according to their agents and publicity teams that essentially create a lot of the content that you see in the news. Gossip that just pushes far more important news out of the news. Important news that is likely the context we will need to understand the next war, which will yet again be a surprise that we will be told nobody saw coming, a complete surprise with many asking, why do they hate us? And we will not know how to answer that question because the reasons that led up to war will have been knocked out of the news. I know it's been said before, but the more you watch the news, the less you actually know. But Dan, more important than how frustrating the so-called news can be, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, why are you joining Truth Social? Why are you joining Truth Social? Social? We will share your question from hell answers as posted at Patreon. Dot com slash this is hell coming up after our talk with Sophia on precision weaponry. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Dan has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is the Asian or Korean pear. Last week, medicaldaily.com posted the article Hangover Cure. Eating an Asian pear before drinking may lessen next day symptoms. They report, according to a government-funded study conducted in Australia, the Asian pear may be able to prevent feeling hungover after a night of drinking. 
The findings add on to PEAR's already long list of benefits, which include lowering cholesterol, relieving constipation, and providing anti-inflammatory effects. Researchers first announced the link between pears and hangovers in July 2015. They discovered the benefits pear juice had on someone suffering from a hangover. Misery reduced by 16 to 21 percent when drinkers had pear juice before their first glass of wine or scotch. The study's lead authors quoted as saying, hangover severity was significantly reduced in the Korean pear group compared to those having a placebo drink. Never wanted to have that placebo drink, Joe. <laughs> they suck. And they lead to hangovers. <laughs> right. MedicalDaily.com concludes, do not pick up a pear when you're feeling the effects of a hangover the next morning. This hangover trick only works if a pear con- is consumed before the drinking even begins. That makes this week's hangover cure, eating an Asian or Korean pear, or drinking Asian or Korean pear juice. Coming up before pres- drinking. Yes, before drinking. you got to do it before drinking. You can't do it while you are hungover. It doesn't work that way. Coming up, Precision Weapons are a fantasy. Dan shares some of your answers to our most recent question from hell. We will tell you what happened during our most recent bonus Patreon podcast, which is available at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll tell you what's happening later this week on the show. And as it is Monday, historian Dr. Seb Vupper has a new past inside the present when Seb provides the historic context from the past so we can have a better understanding of our present. Dan, what is Seb talking about this week? Seb is talking about the history of something that's in these days as invisible as air, money. (laughs) This is especially in my household. Live from late capitalism where we know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. This is hell. And while we may know the price of sophisticated surveillance and security systems, like the multi-billion dollar effort to separate Gaza from the rest of the world with a barrier wall, the actual value of the wall, the importance, worth, or usefulness of the wall, the principles and standards of behavior, one's judgment of what is important in life, seems not to be considered at all. And if they ever were, what do those values reflect? Here to help us have a better understanding of the wall separating Gaza from Israel, surveillance and digital rights scholar and writer Sophia Goodfriend posted the Baffler article, Blunt Force Precision Warfare Does Not Exist. Welcome to This Is Hell, Sophia. Sophia, you there? Sophia, welcome to This Is Hell. Sophia. Hello. Oh, hi, Sophia. How are you doing? Uh, great to have you on the show. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, so front page of the New York Times today, there's a headline that says hubris and missed signals as Hamas readied attack. Uh, Israel's sense of uh, invincibility is the subheadline is shattered by years of intelligence mistakes. And the uh, article reports that the most powerful military force in the Middle East had not only completely underestimated the magnitude of the attack by Hamas, it had totally failed in its intelligence gathering efforts, mostly due to hubris and the mistaken assumption that Hamas was a threat contained. So how much do you think arrogance 
and poor intelligence contributed to what Hamas might see as a success in their October 7th attacks. Would you agree with the New York Times that this is just about arrogance and poor intelligence? So I think it's it's a much larger and more complex story than just arrogance and poor intelligence. Um, that's something that I outline in the, the piece for The Baffler. But I'll speak to that first. I think that I've spoken to many military establishment um, figures here in Israel, and many are cited in that New York Times piece, um, who really thought that the border between Gaza and the Israeli communities in the desert and in the in what's called the envelope reason, that it was really impenetrable and that got in that Hamas was never going to plan such a large scale ground invasion. You know, any kind of um, worst case scenario that the military had planned for um, in past kind of trainings and, and meetings was an attack on five to seven civilian um, towns in that area. And on October 7th, Hamas attacked nearly five times as many, including a music festival. Um, and I think they were, you know, as that piece points out, in some part, the Israeli military establishment was lulled by Hamas's relative restraint in recent years. They thought there was a, you know, interest in continuing the flow of cash from Qatar and increasing the number of Gaza residents allowed to work in Israel. Um, but it it was also a kind of unwavering faith in the 1.1 billion dollar border wall that was containing um, two million people within the Gaza Strip too. I mean, Israel has long billed itself as this impenetrable military powerhouse. And uh, nobody in the military establishment um, fathomed that such a huge assault was being planned and, and could be carried out really right under their nose. Um, but, you know, besides that kind of hubris, it also goes back to um, flows of cash and, and uh, military expertise between the United States and Israel, um, certain priorities on intelligence and technology that uh, the United States has has also taught Israel. So there's there's a much larger and more complex history than just hubris, but it does certainly play a role. So civilian deaths have outnumbered combatant deaths during wartime for well over a century. Why do we want to believe precision warfare exists? Does it allow us to some degree to be in denial about the brutality or the cruelty of war? Yeah, definitely. I mean, precision warfare kind of rests on this assumption that better algorithms, more precise drone strikes, um, more complex technology will somehow make warfare less bloody, more humane, and more efficient. Um, and I mean, we see this so much in the United States in the in the global war on terror, for sure. Um, but it's it's a mythology that kind of penetrates and shapes warfare all around the world. Um, and I think Gaza provides a really salient example of how this is quite false. Um, I mean, we can look at other places in the Middle East where drone warfare has been, you know, wreaking so much havoc for the past two decades. But in Gaza in particular, the IDF has has promised for a long time that drones and precision warfare would somehow make the blockade and uh, the occupation more humanitarian and that, you know, they were going to contain Hamas and can continue to do targeted strikes on a militant group without actually injuring civilians in what is often described as an open air prison. It's one of the most densely populated places on earth. Um, but in practice, we see these, these drone strikes over the years. And I should say that Israeli bombardments on Gaza have become almost annual since 2021. We've seen these kill so many civilians, um, hundreds and now, and now thousands. I mean, the death toll in Gaza now is upwards of 8,000 last time I checked. Um, 
which is just an extraordinary number. Um, but even before this assault, and this assault, I should say, Israel's kind of abandoned any sort of pretense towards precision. So many civilians were killed in, in past drone strikes on the Strip that were said to be really surgical, quote unquote, events. Um, you know, within Israeli military doctrine, it even says that a certain number of non-combatants can be killed in drone strikes. So that kind of throws any pretense of precision kind of out the window to to begin with. Um, but it's impossible to conduct drone strikes or aerial warfare on a civilian area without causing immense damage, not just killing people, but, you know, causing infrastructural damage, ruining people's homes. 70% of, of Gazans, of Palestinians in Gaza were um, in need of humanitarian assistance before this war because of the prolonged siege and, and continued bombardments on the Strip. So I think that's a really good example of how any kind of claim to precision warfare before this um, is, is quite untenable. Does the belief in precision warfare allow the public to not only tolerate persistent, continued forever wars, but does the myth of precision warfare also lend to public support for war as it is believed to be precise and relatively harmless to innocent civilians who likely had no say in whether their nation would be going to war or not? Does belief in precision warfare not only lead to support for war, but does it lead to war? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think we've seen that in the 21st century, for sure. There's so many wars being waged um, by the U.S. military without without the public even knowing about it, um, because you don't have to deploy combat troops. You don't have to muster political support for an enormous ground invasion, for drafting many, many soldiers into a war effort. Um, and you can... And you can wage war without without it really impacting the vast majority of people's lives within places like the United States or places like Israel. Um, that was, I guess, in Israel before October 7th, I should say. Um, but also the way that we talk about drone warfare and precision warfare, we use these words like surgical strike. Um, we use these kind of sterile uh, phrases and terminology that really eclipse the actual bloodshed that, you know, bombing buildings and dropping um, and dispatching drones into, into urban areas actually entails. Um, and it really, uh, really erases the human cost of, of these operations and these wars that are, that are dragging on for decades now. Um, because you don't see the, the people who are, who are living under drone strikes. You don't hear the drones buzzing overhead um, within U.S. media or Israeli media. You just hear this kind of sanitized terminology to describe um, constant warfare. So I think that in that sense, it it does allow war to drag on and makes it quite sustainable and easier for militaries to wage because they don't have to garner, again, the political support. Um, they don't have to dispatch tons of, of troops on the ground and they can replace that kind of activity with uh, weapons, with automated weapons. And you report how late last month Israeli military representatives took Admiral Rob Bauer, chairman of uh, NATO's military committee, on a tour of the Gaza border to show off their automated weaponry and surveillance systems, supercomputing algorithms and robotics were officials boasted, helping to fortify a $1.1 billion smart border fence erected in 2021, creating an impenetrable barrier between the 2.2 million Palestinians blockaded within the coastal enclave and the Israeli communities beyond. In this scene, the Israeli military 
almost seems like a sales rep. Was Israel trying to sell the surveillance system to NATO? Was the tour of the surveillance system in hopes of NATO potentially implementing the same kind of barrier wall in Europe as a way to keep people out of the region, whether they are suspected uh, terrorists, suspected criminals in any way, or just people who are trying to migrate from one area to the other. Was that what Israel was involved in, trying to sell this border project to the world? Yeah, so for a long time, journalists and researchers have condemned the Israeli military's use of Gaza as what a lot of people describe as a laboratory a kind of testing ground for the latest innovations in, in surveillance technology, homeland security systems, and automated warfare. Um, and we do see so many of these technologies that are used in Gaza and have been used in Gaza since the blockade began 16 years ago, um, increasingly around the world. I mean, there's a direct uh, through line between you know drones dispatched over Gaza and the drones that are now used to surveil refugees in crowded camps um, in Greece. Uh, there's lots of writing and, and reporting on these kinds of this kind of circuit of, of technology um, that goes from Gaza and is now transforming borderlands in the United States too, and, and places like Northwest China as well. Um, so certainly, and I think you know the Israeli military has really prided itself in pioneering um, systems in at the expense of, of so many people's lives in the Gaza Strip. I mean, in 2021, Israel waged an 11-day bombardment on Gaza amidst the historic uprisings across um, Israel and Palestine. Um, and it framed it, it billed that assault as the world's first AI war. And kind of immediately after that, there were Elbit, there were Elbit um, drones advertisements of automated drone swarms that were available on YouTube. And the IDF's social media was churning out really laudatory accounts of how effective these kinds of um, new AI-powered drones were. And not only was that claim kind of exaggerated because there have been uh, AI-powered drones in warfare before 2021, but it also provided a really salient example of how the you can't really look at Israeli military action in Gaza outside of this giant military industrial complex that is um, transforming how war is waged all around the world. And there is certainly, certainly a profit motive behind it. Um, and plenty of people have written about that in more detail. Uh, but you really can't divorce Israel's increasingly privatized military and, and, and weapons apparatus uh, <clears throat> and the profit motive behind that from military operations in the region. And uh, again, stressing the global military industrial complex. This isn't just about Israel's or the United States, yeah. but the global uh, complex. Definitely. You also point out that early in Israel's blockade, the military labeled Gaza an experimental ground for cutting edge security solutions. At weapons expositions and in press releases, generals advertised digital and automated weapons field tested on the Strip's inhabitants. At trade shows, Israel's military would show off new weapons that they tested on the Gaza Strip. Is there any evidence at all that would suggest that these attacks occurred because Israel wanted to test new weaponry their arms industry could then sell to the world with proof by making Gazans guinea pigs? Because that seems like some sort of crime. You mean the attacks on October 7th? No, I'm saying Sorry, the, the attacks by the uh, by the Israeli oh. defense forces against the Gazan people, were these be, were these attacks being done in order to test out this technology? Was was that the reasoning behind those attacks? 
it's hard to know exactly what the reasoning behind the attacks are. Um, I, I would say, you know, that I think the military does believe kind of their selling points here. I think that the military has, the Israeli military has prided itself in kind of being this world leader, this homeland security capital. And for years and years, the military officials have said that these technologies would enhance Israeli security. And I think a lot of people believe they would enhance the security of people all around the world. And now, you know, we're seeing the events of, of the past few weeks really fly in the face of all of those claims. Um, so I don't know how much I can speak on like uh, about intent to test weapons without kind of verifying that and being able to cross check that with actual statements that people have made. Um, but it's impossible again to divorce warfare from the profit motive behind it in an age of a globalized military industrial complex. And when you know you can use warfare as an opportunity to sell weapons, and it's it's really hard to really separate again uh, profit from from the political imperatives of, of those wars. I can say though that you know beyond just selling weapons, Israeli political leadership had a real interest in containing Hamas and maintaining the blockade, even if, as we've seen, it, it seems to have really gone against Israeli security and, and the imperative of national security. Which is to say that. For years, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu um, was allowing money and supplies and normalizing relations essentially with Hamas in the hopes of really fracturing any sort of viable Palestinian political leadership. Uh, the PA rules over the West Bank and Hamas has ruled over the Gaza Strip since it, it won elections there in 2006. Um, and Netanyahu, as well as many other ministers in his, in his cabinet now have been um, on the record in saying that they wanted to maintain Hamas in power to prevent any sort of kind of two-state solution from even being on the table, from preventing any sort of um, Palestinian national autonomy from being a possibility. Because so long as Palestinian political leadership was fractured, then that was that was unquestionable. So um, that's that's a real intent behind the 16 years of blockade that we've seen in the constant warfare as well. Um, and we've also seen a huge military industrial homeland security uh, industry pop up around Israel and um, really thrive as, as that blockade has continued. Considering the investment that was put into the surveillance system, considering the investment that was put into the barrier wall, considering how much of a propagandistic investment that the Israeli Defense Force as well as the Israeli government had put into the barrier wall, not just internationally, but domestically as well. How much of an embarrassment is the breach of the wall by Hamas uh, for the Israeli government and the IDF? And do you think that embarrassment in any way um, contributed to the kind of response that has been made by the Israeli Defense Forces? Yeah, I mean, embarrassment is an interesting word. I think it's it's hard. I mean, what happened on October 7th was was such a traumatic event for the entire Israeli state that, you know, it was certainly an embarrassment. It was certainly a failure of the intelligence apparatus, but it was also so much more than that. Um, and I think it's going to fundamentally transform, you know, the national ethos and unfortunately the political um, climate here for forever. Um, but certainly the, the immense destruction that's being waged now in Gaza can be seen as a kind of retribution campaign. I mean, I, I would also say that so many in Israel are now saying that, you know, in terms of its its political, the event's political impact on um, Israelis, Jewish Israelis' political beliefs now, so many are, are 
all for this kind of um, flattening of Gaza discourse. So many are saying, how could we possibly live alongside Hamas now? And there's there's tons of support for this um, this goal of destroying Hamas, which seems, as lots of international commentators have, have really noted, pretty unrealistic. Um, so I would say embarrassment comes along with all of these other uh, intense and very important emotions. But I would also say that, you know, it, it's pretty astounding that Hamas could plan this for over a year without triggering any sort of alarm in the security establishment. There were videos of, of Hamas militants training in mock Israeli um, towns within Gaza that military intelligence saw that were circulated on social media. Um, there was all of these kinds of inklings of this massive campaign being planned. But Hamas was also very careful and and had a lot of intel on how Israel was surveilling them. So, you know, on phone conversations, they wouldn't talk about, obviously, what was being planned. They would talk about how they didn't want to embark on any sort of military operation to not trigger any alarms um, among those surveilling them. And they took all of their operations essentially offline. Um, a lot of communication was contained to landlines installed in tunnels um, under the ground. And the fact that they could also compile so much intelligence on Israeli border infrastructure without anybody figuring this out. I mean, they mapped um, all of the remote sensors. They took out, I think, 100 automatic machine gun turrets with drones. They seem to have really detailed maps of military bases, at least according to the New York Times, and also um, intel on Israeli towns surrounding that area. So the fact that they were able to compile all of this information flies in the face of so many um, uh, claims by the Israeli military that it's the most vaunted and the most powerful uh, surveillance apparatus and the most successful homeland security state. Um, and so it is a massive embarrassment for the security establishment in that sense, for sure. And it's also an enormous tragedy um, for so many Israelis who witnessed and who are directly impacted, uh, which most of the country is just because of the size. So yeah, it's it's pretty astounding that Hamas was able to uh, carry out what Hamas militants and their supporters would say was only like an incredibly successful um, attack on Israeli on the real fabric of Israeli civilian life. So, how much damage do you think is going to be done in the long term, or even in the short term? to Israelis' defense industry, to their uh, their industry that was behind and profiting from and building the barrier wall? Do you think that this is going to lead to long-term damage to their defense industry, which could be problematic for their economy? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a little bit pessimistic as to how much this is going to actually hurt Israel's defense industry. I think that in past bombardments on Gaza, Israeli weapons sales have actually gone up. Um, and I don't see this actually changing much. You know, already I've seen um, articles in Israeli press that talk about, you know, what are the newest AI systems that the military is going to unveil in its assault on Gaza? Or what are the ground troops going to use to make them the most impenetrable and technologically sophisticated as they go into the Gaza Strip? Um, so unfortunately, I think that as much as this really flies in the face of all these claims that, you know, a $1.1 billion border wall and all of these fancy remote sensing technologies and the drones and the biometric cameras 
will enhance security, I don't think that it will actually puncture weapons sales so much. I think it's going to obviously have an enormous effect, and it already is on Israeli on Israel's economy as a whole, um, embarking on an unending um, siege on Gaza and and war across across Israel. But in terms of the actual impact it's going to have on weapon sales, I'm pretty pessimistic. I think that these markets are quite resilient. I think that um, they will frame all of the uh, carnage that's happening in Gaza now as kind of proof of their technological prowess. And I think that the sustained ground invasion that's beginning now will probably unfortunately lend itself to more opportunities for the military to tout cutting edge AI systems that they're using in, um, you know, what is pretty unprecedented urban combat, as security experts would say. So, yeah, I think uh, the twisted logic of the weapons industry, unfortunately, kind of thrives off of the continuation of warfare, even if we've seen such a massive failure of all of these technologies that Israel has been advertising and, and selling around the world. There was a spokesperson for the Israeli Defense Forces, a former Israeli Defense member, Defense Force member himself, on mm-hmm. CNN, saying that uh, that Israel did not have any problem, or the IDF did not have any problem with Palestinians. Their issue was with Hamas, and what they were trying to do was not kill Palestinians, but to separate Hamas from the Palestinian people. Implied in that, obviously, is that it is possible to separate Hamas from the Palestinian people and, this, and with this tools like precision weaponry. Is it possible through today's military technology to separate Hamas from the Palestinian people? So I think what we've seen in the past three weeks of really gruesome warfare in Gaza is the impossibility of doing just that. Um, you know, from the get-go, the Israeli military was, response was more uh, brutal than anything we've seen in the past few decades. It's it's the most intense bombardment on Palestine since 1948, for sure. And uh, any kind of pretense of precision warfare has really gone out the window. There hasn't been any effort um, that the military has kind of gestured to of separating civilians from Hamas militants. I mean... You have the the top tier of Israel's military brass going on record saying our our emphasis is on um, damage and not accuracy here. And uh, outlets like the New York Times were reporting that the immense kind of leveling of so much of Gaza City in the past few weeks was really an attempt to clear the ground for a ground invasion. Um, so Israeli troops would have an easier time marching into the Strip. And uh, although the military asked people to evacuate to the south, um, there were reports that strikes were still ongoing in the south. The evacuation route was being hit by Israeli strikes as well. Um, so we've we've really seen the impossibility of separating, uh, you know, Gazan civilians, Palestinian civilians in Gaza from Hamas militants. And it's 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 just you really have to. Um, it's really hard to believe that that's even possible when you see just like the rate of killing now. I mean. I think I saw yesterday that according to the Save the Children, more than 3,200 children have been killed in the fighting so far, which is, I think what they said, it was more children reported in just three weeks in Gaza. That number was more than those killed in armed conflict globally across more than, I think, 20 countries in a whole year for the last three years. So those numbers are just astounding. And, 
you can't really make any kind of claim to precision warfare when you when you grapple with just how many civilians have been killed. I mean, you hear reports of entire families being killed within their homes. Um, so, yeah, I think that the immense destruction we're seeing is is part of military strategy to to make this ground invasion possible. And also you're seeing really right wing politicians within the current government um, advocating for the mass displacement of Palestinians. Um, and this is nothing short of a kind of forced population transfer if, if what they're trying to do is make this permanent. I mean, already 700,000 people have been displaced, um, which is upwards of the number that were that were displaced from their homes in 1948. So Palestinians in Gaza and, and around the world are really calling this a second Nakba. And um, if this was any kind of precision military operation, uh, all of this destruction would, would hopefully be prevented. But um, I don't think that precision warfare is possible, and it's certainly not happening now. We are speaking with surveillance and digital rights scholar and writer Sophia Goodfriend, who posted the Baffler Magazine article, Blunt Force Precision Warfare Does Not Exist. You can follow her on Twitter at SOP Good, and you can find out more about her at her website, Sophia Goodfriend. Com. You quote Mohammed's Ray in Gaza, telling Jewish currents there's no electricity in Gaza, no internet, no medicine, no water, no food supplies, indiscriminate bombing, houses, hospitals, schools, mosques, churches, United Nations buildings, civilians, ambulances, paramedics, and reporters have been targeted. Entire neighborhoods have been flattened. Thousands have been martyred, including 10 people in my immediate family. It's a massacre, and it is but one of many stations in Israel's ongoing Nakba against us. There was a disturbing headline on the front page of this past Thursday's New York Times. The headline read, How Israelis Justify Scale of Airstrikes. The news analysis by Jerusalem Bureau Chief Patrick Kingsley states, Israel argues that strikes that ease an Israeli ground advance will help reduce the loss of life for Palestinian civilians and Israeli soldiers alike once the invasion begins. Do these bombings lessen the risk to Gazans during a ground invasion? It's it's really hard to kind of um, to kind of speak to that calculus of of life. I mean, a ground invasion will kill many many people. It will kill many many Israeli soldiers, and it will kill many many um, Palestinians who remain in Gaza City. Just as a uh, mass bombing of a civilian area will kill many, many civilians. I think that, like I've I've said, you know, no matter the kind of technological arsenal that a military possesses, civ- civilians are going to die in warfare, and it's going to entail really brutal and awful bloodshed, um, especially when the military involved is making little effort to reduce civilian casualties and to not commit war crimes. So, um, you know, I think that the military spokespeople are... are are quite careful in kind of framing whatever they're doing to seem more humanitarian if they want to. And that's one way of framing their current strategy. But, but I don't think that the, the numbers of deaths that we've seen really correlate with, with that claim. So, yeah. The Times Kingley, Kingsley also writes, Israel has said it has targeted scores of Palestinian rocket launchers, command centers, and munitions factories. It has also used powerful bombs to penetrate the surface in order to collapse a network of tunnels hundreds of miles long that armed groups like Hamas have dug deep beneath the territory's most crowded urban centers. Even as Israel has used precision weapons, 
It has maintained a broad definition of what constitutes a military target. Fighter jets wrecked the Islamic University in Gaza because Israel said the campus had been used to train intelligence operatives. They have targeted mosques that Israel says served as weapons depots and operations centers. They have targeted Hamas's commanders in their homes. Is the military using precision weapons, but the problem isn't the weapons, but what the IDF is targeting? Is the problem one of technology or one of choice? I don't think that there's any problem with the technology that they're using. I think that, you know, any sort of past claim to precision warfare was perhaps easier to believe when the scale of um, destruction was uh, relatively contained to what we're seeing now. But um, again, the military has also gone on the record to say that they're really trying to cause as much damage to whatever infrastructure Hamas has managed to maintain and build um, in the Gaza Strip. And because it's one of the most densely populated places on on Earth, that infrastructure is um, embedded inside, often underneath uh, plenty of civilian um, civilian homes and schools and and plenty of other places, which is just to say that precision warfare in this kind of context is impossible. And and really what should be um, emphasized is just kind of the impossibility of adhering to any sort of international law when it comes when it comes to rules of war, um, when you're bombing that kind of that kind of area. So I don't again, I don't think that the you know, I think the weapons are working as they're supposed to. They're causing a lot of damage and they're causing a lot of bloodshed. But um, they're not causing they're not enhancing anybody's security, not Palestinians and not Israelis um, who are living with also the, the fallout of this unending war and the violence that the current round of um, bombardment will certainly yield in the future. You write that Hamas militants breached the Gaza fence in 80 places. They poured through the gaps to attack military outposts, killing and kidnapping soldiers. They stormed Israeli cities, agricultural communities, and a desert rave, massacring over 1,400 Israelis, foreign nationals, and migrant workers, and taking some 200 hostages. Not just one place or a few places in the wall, but they breached the wall in 80 places. The Gaza-Israel border is, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but it's like 32 miles long. That's one breach for every less than a half a mile. Did Hamas only attack what might be considered the wall's weak points, or was this a complete failure of the entire wall and the entire surveillance system? Was this the entire wall failing, or is it just a few places where people found weaknesses? So there's really limited information still that's being put out by the Israeli military in terms of what exactly happened. So actually a lot of the information that we're able to glean now um, of how this breach was carried out is is from what was made available on October 7th, what was distributed by Hamas and, and what's been the, the few admissions that have been made since then. Um, <clears throat> so what we know is that Hamas dispatched many drones to knock out uh, remote sensing technology, they disabled and destroyed remote controlled machine gun towers. They also saturated the radar space with missiles. Um, and they really made the the ability for uh, the people keeping the Israeli soldiers on the border to communicate with one another and to alert anybody else of, of any sort of uh, danger and, and sabotage to the border infrastructure. 
And so once they did that, they were really able to breach the fence in tons of different places. Um, Israeli observers, after they disabled cameras and destroyed them and destroyed remote sensing systems, couldn't see them and couldn't communicate what they saw with anybody else. So the fighters blew open holes in, in the fence. Uh, we saw images of Palestinian bulldozers widening those holes and letting entire trucks come in, letting motorcyclists come in. Uh, some Hamas fighters used paragliders to cross the border, and some even came over on sea. Um, so I think once that they were able to take the systems offline that would alert anybody to any sort of breach to the fence, um, that that immediately caused a massive, massive failure of a $1.1 billion border system. So it really just took that kind of strategic sabotage to pretty sophisticated surveillance infrastructure to let the barrier be breached in all of those places. You mentioned that amid the bloodshed of the Second Intifada and the disintegration of the Oslo Accords, always tenuous promises of peace, Military leadership purported that uh, aerial warfare coupled with monitoring telecommunications, internet activity, and 24-7 drone reconnaissance would make Israeli military rule easier to sustain in the long run while limiting bloodshed in the occupied territories and especially in Gaza. The second intifada was from 2000 to 2005, and at the UN on August 21st this year, Tora Wenislin, uh, special coordinator for the Middle East peace process, reporting live from Jerusalem, told the UN Security Council that more than 200 Palestinians and nearly 30 Israelis had been killed so far in 2023 in demonstrations, clashes, military operations, attacks, and other incidents, which already surpassed last year's death toll. It represents the biggest number of fatalities since 2005 and reflects concerning trends seen in recent months throughout the occupied Palestinian territory. Wenislin is also quoted saying, Palestinians and Israelis are killed and injured in near daily violence, including just hours before this briefing when another fatal shooting attack killed an Israeli in the West Bank. So annual deaths were at an all-time high since the second infatada. So did Israel's surveillance and security system play a role in that increase in civilian deaths or with, you know, without that system, that uh, an intense $1.1 billion surveillance and security system, would there even have been more Palestinians who would have died? Do you think that this barrier system led to more deaths within, Pal- within uh, Gaza that may have provoked the attacks by Hamas? Or do you think that uh, without that surveillance system, we would have even seen more killing? Yeah, so let's let's be let's distinguish between the West Bank and Gaza here. So I think those numbers are about the deaths, the Palestinian deaths in the West Bank mostly, um, which have been at an all-time high for the past two years. And you know Hamas's activities and what happens in Gaza is is inextricable from from those developments. But I think what we're seeing is really a few decades of technology really standing in for political solutions to violence. Um, the failure of the Oslo Accords. The, the so-called um, quote-unquote containment of Hamas within Gaza um, came instead of any sort of commitment to any sort of peace process, any sort of commitment to establishing a two-state solution or a one-state solution or whatever, um, any sort of ability for Israel to you know halt the construction of settlements, to 
um, stop enabling right-wing extremists from expanding into Palestinian towns and and villages across the West Bank as well. Um, And instead of really pursuing any sort of political solution to regional volatility that has just dragged on um, at a brutal human cost to Palestinians and Israelis over the past two decades, technology really stood in for anything else. Um, You know, so a lot of the military elite who were overseeing these developments said that just with better cameras, with more effective border walls, with biometric checkpoints and with automated drones, we can quell violence without actually bringing about any sort of final end to it. Um, And so I think it's important to kind of see the way that technology is leveraged by politicians and militaries, not just in Israel, but worldwide as kind of, you know, a prosthetic uh, kind of um, holding place rather than pursuing actual lasting political solutions to um, problems like violence and conflict and, and militarism and extremism. So I think that the developments that we've seen in the West Bank and Gaza and Israel-Palestine over the past two years really fall into that that global pattern. Um, yeah. You uh, write of that global faith that technology could save us and solve us solve all of our problems and venture capital-oriented technology sectors closely tied to the military and police establishment. You write that the Israeli military's posture toward Gaza for the last 17 years cannot be understood outside these global trends. After all, the U.S. military made techno-solutionism the center of military policy at the dawn of the global war on terror, which called for dragnet surveillance and drone warfare. Were Israelis, uh, was Israel's uh, surveillance and security system to any degree inspired by the U.S. war on terror? Is Israel currently applying the military strategy against Gaza that the U.S. employed at the outset of the war on terror? And to the Israeli government and the Israeli people, does that legitimize their attack on Gaza? Does the U.S. war on terror and the way that it was employed by the U.S., does that legitimize from the Israeli perspective of the government or the public the attacks on Hamas? Israel's military strategy was incredibly, incredibly inspired by the United States war on terror. Um, Its entire military intelligence apparatus was restructured in the early 2000s in in consultation and inspired by big changes to the U.S.'s own surveillance apparatus um, after the events of 9-11. So it's really important to kind of look at that and see these, these trends as quite global and you can't really... You can't really isolate changes to Israel's surveillance state and its increasingly technologized occupation and military rule over the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem from um, what was happening in the United States in that era, which which listeners in Chicago and and in the States are assuming pretty familiar with. Um, And I think in terms of Israeli military strategy, the primacy of the United States as both, you know, this protector, um, somebody... uh, a country that gives millions of billions of dollars in in military aid every year, um, it was certainly a kind of legitimating force as well. Um, you know, Israel to this day not only gets so much money in, in U.S. military aid, but also there's technology transfers, there's um, joint training exercises, there's lots of collaboration between the two militaries, um, and there's a whole complex geopolitical reasons behind that that many other people can talk about in more detail. Um, But in terms of just pure military strategy, 
revamping Israel's surveillance apparatus in the image of the United States surveillance state and its and its homeland security um, program in the early 2000s was a, a kind of a way of, of demonstrating to Israelis amidst the failure of a peace process and the bloodshed of the Second Antifada for Israelis and Palestinians that, you know, this is a way forward. We might not be pursuing peace on the ground, but we're going to revamp our technological arsenal. We're going to become a homeland security capital and we'll be this protector in the Middle East and we'll protect our citizens, um, even if we won't pursue any sort of lasting peace plan. Um, just look at the United States and how effective that is. So I think that it's really important to kind of to see those two trends together, for sure. Shortly after the uh, they announced a disengagement with Hamas, uh, the Israeli government enga- uh, announced a disengagement with Hamas because they had won the elections in uh, 2005. You write that in January 2006, Hamas, a militant political party labeled a terrorist organization by the U.S. State Department and whose charter calls for the destruction of Israel, won just under 45% of the votes in the Palestinian elections, but they did win a plurality. Uh, Those elections were the ones being pushed by President Bush and his Secretary of State at the time, Condoleezza Rice. We had guests before and after that vote who told us that Hamas was likely going to win those elections, and the Bush administration should not have pushed for elections which Hamas supported, but elections that both uh, Israel and Fatah opposed. So Secretary of State Rice then said she was completely surprised Hamas won the vote, which became the mainstream media conventional wisdom. But many insiders predicted that was exactly what was going to happen. Is the war in Gaza all based on a miscalculation by President Bush and Condoleezza Rice that Hamas would not win those elections? Because it seems like whether it was that mistake that the Bush administration made or the war on terror that they uh, employed, which is now inspiring what is happening in Gaza, are we right now looking at just the long-term legacy of the bad decisions that were made by the Bush administration? I mean, that's certainly in the mix, but you can't really separate decades of Israeli occupation and um, the repression that has entailed across Palestine from what's happening now. I mean, Gaza um, has become a focal point of Palestinian uprisings that kicked off. It, I mean, it was the start of the, the first Antifada that kicked off in, in Gaza in 1988. And, and again, it was the start of the second Antifada that kicked off in Gaza in, in 2000. It was really a, a focal point of that as well. Um, so you can't really separate that regional history, the, the kind of the decades of that regional history from what's happening now. But the United States certainly has played a pivotal role in exacerbating the violence and and um, we've seen administration after administration um, provide sanction to Israeli policy that hasn't uh, yielded any sort of long-term solution to the violence um, as of yet. So, yeah, but I, I would say that it's it's a it, you can't really separate the decades of Israeli occupation from what's happening now as well. Do you think the Israeli government or the Israeli Defense Forces made a decision when it comes to the barrier wall that was more based on profit making than it was based on actually providing security for the Israeli people? That's a good question. And, you know, it's hard to say if it was based on profit making. I would kind of be careful about making that claim. I think that when you talk about this unwavering faith in technology and we talk about a kind of hubris um, that so many in the military seem to have about Israel's technological ability. I think that was more of the issue here. Um, <clears throat> and of course, you can't separate, like I said, the kind of the um, 
profit motive of, of a military industrial complex from military policy. But I don't think that was the only thing. I think that really um, Israeli military officials believed that the more expensive and advanced and um, sophisticated apparatus, surveillance apparatus on the border there was, the more impenetrable it was. Um, but I also would say that, you know, these kinds of unwavering faiths in technology, the increasing emphasis on technology over other kinds of um, military activity is part and parcel of, of, of what happened as well in terms of the failure of the intelligence apparatus and the failure of the army, army to respond um, in time to Hamas's horrific massacring of, of civilians across the communities around Gaza. Which is to say that over the past few years, Israeli military officials have really diverted funds and um, attention from combat units and uh, really placed that within technology units. You've had a few higher ups in the Israeli military kind of lamenting that the technology units, the intelligence units had become a showcase. Um, you had warnings from other generals that Israel's ground troops weren't ready for a ground invasion, that they needed to be revamped, that there needed to be more investments and more funding coming there. There was also warnings that, you know, they weren't getting enough conscripts who wanted to serve in combat units, who wanted to be in ground troops, and that more people were kind of pouring into intelligence units because it promised a good job and it was kind of seen as, as this form of technological training that would set you up to make a lot of money in a civilian technology sector. Um, so I would also say that, you know, this emphasis on a high tech and expensive border came at uh, also the cost of other kinds of military strategy. And, and you can't really see the intelligence failure and what's what's happening now separate from also those trends over the past few years. And as you've been pointing out, it's also a more than anything, a failure of political leadership and the ability to avoid war through diplomacy. We have been speaking with surveillance and digital rights scholar and writer Sophia Goodfriend, who posted the Baffler Magazine article, Blunt Force Precision Warfare Does Not Exist. You can follow her on Twitter at SOPGood, and you can find out more about her at her website, sophiagoodfriend.com. One last question for you, Sophia, and as we do with all mm -hmm. of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question you may hate to, uh, we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. So how culpable are U.S. taxpayers for the war in Gaza? Do we deserve blame for subsidizing, creating, and profiting from the wars being used against Gazans' people? I mean, in terms of culpability, U.S. taxpayers' money is is funding Israel's military as we speak. Um, so if you want to see that as culpability or you want to see it as something else, be my guest. Um, but I think also beyond that, there's so many ways in which people in, in the United States and worldwide who, who work in the technology industries um, or who work in you know universities or, or research institutes are unwittingly kind of bound up in, in warfare around the world. Um, and so I think that it's also important to kind of look at how somebody who works at Microsoft might be implicitly um, or an unwittingly engaging in weapons development or somebody who works at a university also helping build up algorithms that are going to determine a missile strike somewhere else. Um, so there's all these pernicious ways in which so much of our civilian economy in the States is, is bound up in, in warfare as well. So I think that the culpability is, is much larger than just taxpayers, um, but also those that you know, into the heart of our civilian economy, too.
So yeah, that's that's my answer to that question. Sophia, thank you so much for being on our show. This is fantastic writing. I, I haven't seen anything like this anywhere else in any other reporting I've been reading on what's happening in Gaza. I truly appreciate you being on. Thank you so much and enjoy your week. Thanks. Take care. Take care. Bye. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. If our conversation with Sophia Goodfriend made you realize precision weaponry is a myth created by the arms industry to make the public not feel so bad for paying for and supporting indiscriminate warfare, show your appreciation for completely commercial-free This Is Hell, providing over 27 years of content that you cannot find anywhere else, giving airtime to analysis like what you just heard from Sophia, analysis you won't hear anywhere else, and providing new content to you absolutely free every week since 1996, including nearly 10 years of free shows that you can listen to right now at thisishell.com. You, you can show your support for all of that by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com. Sometimes it's on Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Sometimes it's on Friday morning. And this week it's going to be on Friday morning. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and just clicking on support, where you can see all the ways you can support This Is Hell. And somebody has to because you know that to corporate and public establishment media, this is hell on our most recent bonus patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell which went live this past thursday october 26th i confess to something that is frankly embarrassing i admitted that i have abandoned my morals and ethics and have capitulated to the specter that haunts us all i have surrendered to the status quo and conformity i have fallen victim to peer pressure this week on patreon i admit that i have disappointed not only myself, but everyone. And for that, I apologize. But you can only find out what I'm confessing to if you become a subscriber on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Following my admission of guilt, we went back 15 years and found an interview discussing a collaboration between Israelis and Palestinians in a project to raise worldwide awareness of crimes and abuses being committed by the Israeli government and military within the occupied territories. The interview was shared uh, th that we shared is from a uh, uh, September 6th, 2008, and it's a conversation with Jessica Montel, Executive Director of Bishalem, the Israeli Information Center for Human Rights in the Occupied Territories. Jessica was on at the time to discuss her group's work on human rights and their project that was called Shooting Back. It's a video advocacy project focusing on the occupied territories. Bishalem provided Palestinians living in high conflict areas with video cameras with the goal of bringing the reality of their lives under occupation to the attention of the Israeli and international public exposing and seeking redress for violations of human rights. But the only way you can hear me admit to something I'm not very proud of, in fact, something that fills me with shame, and a 2008 talk about Israelis and Palestinians collaborating to fight for peace is by subscribing at patreon.com slash this is how you also be when you become a subscriber get a discount code word special secret code word for all of our stuff at this when you click on support and not only do you get first crack at the question from hell every week but we can you but now you can ask a question from hell 
of me, your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. It's a great way to stay on top of everything going on behind the scenes as well with exclusive content only for Patreon subscribers. All you have to do is subscribe at patreon.com slash thisishell. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and how are our listeners responding on Patreon? This week's question from hell is, why are you joining Truth Social? (laughs) Uh, And Mason W. writes, I like this one, I keep striking out on Tinder. (laughs) (laughs) That's disturbing. Uh, (laughs) But very good, Mason. (laughs) Wishing you luck on uh, (laughs) Truth Truth Social. Social. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Old Grouch says, because my mother told me to tell the truth, and as a child, I almost never did. All right. Only time I did get a belt whipping from dad. <laughs> wow. So now I know you've got to be selective who gets the whole truth and against whom you must be prepared to fight. So just to point out, so the first two answers uh, discussed Tinder and child abuse. Just want to, I just want to keep score over here. So. We're reckon, rocking out Monday mornings <laughs> here. Know. So what's the next one? Uh, that's uh, it for but, now, but there's two strong ones there. Yeah, they're very strong on Patreon. So thank you both very much for sending and posting your answers to this week's question from hell. Very re- revealing answers as well. Very revealing answers. Disturbingly revealing answers. So again, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. You can post it on our, in our uh, Discord community or at our Patreon page. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. You can even post it in our Facebook group page. Welcome to the hellhole. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner following Jeff Dorchin and his weekly moment of truth. And now... The return of Dr. Sebastian Vupper, a historian himself, an historian himself? Let's go with Anne. An historian himself who gives us the historical context of the past so we can have a better understanding of the present in his segment, The Past Inside the Present. You know, it's the kind of historical context that the media just likes to erase. So please take it away, Sebastian. The past inside the present. I thought you wanted to take the whole the return of Sebastian out of out of the script. Oh, but uh, I, I had to put it back in because you weren't here last week. Uh, uh, yeah, I guess that's true. But last week we just didn't have the. Nah, anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> we'll work. Oh on. well, we'll do the paperwork yeah. later on. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, I'm still not quite ready to do a full segment on uh, Israel or the history of Israel or, well, whatever that will eventually turn into. I'm thinking that might actually turn into something like uh, Israeli History Month, um, where we talk about the history of Zionism, the Aliyah, uh, what the Holocaust has to do with all of that, and the Nakba, and the history of the state of Israel and its connection with the wider world, because why would we look at the history of such a place in isolation? 
Um, but I'm not quite there yet. I know what my stance is, though. I know what my position is. As someone who is basically catching themselves in a process of ongoing Americanization, I feel like I am shedding some of the intentional lack of criticality uh, towards Israel that many of my German comrades feel. While I'm also becoming increasingly aware of the deeply ingrained Islamophobia that such a stance by necessity cultivates. Doing this publicly carries the real risk that I can in the future no longer hope for employment that is in any way funded by the German state, by the way. Uh, but that's another story for another time. Ultimately, my stance, I think, must be this. I am an anti-fascist. I am opposed to fascism. Wh wherever that fascism comes from, be it nationalist fascism, Christian fascism, Muslim fascism, or indeed Jewish fascism. Because to insinuate that the Jewish people are somehow incapable of falling into that pit is itself something of an anti-Semitic thing, if we're being absolutely honest here. And I'm not for a second thinking, and if you believe that makes me an anti-Semite, then all right, I'm an anti-Semite. No, no, I am not. I reject that notion very, very strongly. Not even for a second am I considering myself an anti-Semite. You can't just have words mean whatever you need them to mean. But anyway... If I condemn Israel for falling into fascism and committing genocide, I am not doing that because I somehow hate Jewish folks. I am doing that because, A, as someone from a country with some decidedly fascist history, I know what that looks like. And B, from the history of my own people, I can tell my Israeli and pro-Israel friends that the end of that road is not pretty for anyone involved. Turn back and stop whataboutting me about Hamas. I already said I also stand against Islamic fascism. Obviously, I'm not celebrating senseless violence against civilians, and I honestly find the insinuation that people who defend Palestinian rights do at best accept and at worst cheer on violence against Jewish civilians unless they performatively condemn Hamas at every turn before they decry Israeli war crimes. I honestly find that quite insulting. Uh, pointing out those facts is just simply not anti-Semitic. But anyway, today's topic is something that, okay, I need to be crystal, crystal clear here. That has nothing at all to do with the war in the Middle East. It has nothing at all to do with Jewish people. Um, and I've been meaning to talk about this for a bit. And now I feel like I need to be extra super duper clear that there is no connection at all. Because today's topic is kind of a part in the informal series of everything has a history. I want to talk about or at least touch upon, because it is quite a lot of history there, the history of money. Um, first in general, but then specifically American money. So what is money? I mean, abstractly speaking, it is today, at least, abstract labor. Um, somebody does work, that work produces something, and then they exchange that something for another thing. But to make that transaction more universal, it's proven to be simpler if somebody does work that produces something and then receives some sort of exchange unit for that, which that person can then go and exchange for something else entirely. At least that's the standard economic theory. Before money, it is said there was barter. The arrowhead maker had to exchange arrowheads for chickens, but had to find a chicken farmer in need of arrowheads 
arrowheads or find someone uh, something the chicken farmer wanted and then trade arrowheads for that, making the whole process very cumbersome by abstracting the fruit or flavor. That way, the producer of X is not bound. So by abstracting the fruit or flavor in terms of turning it into money, the producer of X is not bound to trade with people who uh, is not bound to trade with people who just specifically want X. So and so far, so good. But this is where the late great David Graeber asserts that this actually never happened. Uh, no society in the world ever bartered this way. Money did not appear to simplify this process. Bartering um, was generally something that happened between strangers, not within a society. The monetary system uh, we know today is a much more recent invention, and that recent invention overshadows the deeper past because it is such a universal, universalizing principle. We simply lack the imagination to think of a world where we can't ascribe a very precise monetary value to everything and thus have everything in a value relationship to everything else. We did not always function that way. But how do societies agree what their money is, what their currency is, and what is the worth of something anyway? This is where Graeber's argument again gains momentum. Because money, as we know it today, has little to do with barter economies. Because if you look at the historic record, or in Graeber's case, the anthropological record, the two overlap a lot, well, barter economies are something of a myth. The determination of value of many everyday objects, Graeber finds, comes down to legal arguments, not barter, not down to the market or the economy. How many goats are owed for the accidental killing of one child? How many pelts of fox, marten, and beaver does one have to give for a stolen milk cow? Historically, those legal codes were where society decided the values of things. Where money becomes more of a thing of, uh, you know, a, a something that is kind of similar to what we have today is through taxation. And this is where we get into American history and specifically the history of money in North America. What is the reason that the U.S. dollar is as strong as it is? Well, it is the American economy because Americans buy stuff with it, but more importantly, because Americans pay taxes using the American dollar. If Americans pay taxes in flip-flops, Dogecoin, or, I don't know, Dixon Ticonderoga 2B pencils, those things would become much hotter commodities. And now I'm imagining a petro-pencil-driven world economy, but I digress. Uh, but a national currency is a national currency because the citizen of that nation pay their taxes with it. And the, na and the nation pays whoever works for them, who works for the state in that currency that, ha that the state has derived from taxes. And here is where an example from the American national history comes in. So we all know the whole story of the American Revolution being all about taxes. And that much is true. The revolution was spurred by the British levying taxes on the American colonists which the colonists thought was outrageous. And well, if you look at the historic record, the colonists were kind of a little temper tantrum throwing brats in that situation. But that, again, is another story. Uh, what's really interesting here is that they had to some degree a point at being upset about having to pay taxes because as British citizens, it meant they had to pay taxes in British currency. And coming up with that currency was a real pain in the ass at the time. The colonies were far away from Britain. The trade that happened within the colonies did not predominantly use British currency. Some trade was done uh, with essentially IOUs. Some was simply local and informal and some 
trade used other currencies like Spanish coins. Scratching together the pounds to pay the taxman was actually quite difficult. But taxmen, of course, wouldn't take, well, it's hard to get the appropriate amount of pounds for an answer. Nor would they have accepted taxes paid in Spanish silver. Funny enough, after the colonies had gained independence, the same thing kept being a big issue for the citizens of the young United States. And then Shays' Rebellion in 1786, Massachusetts, uh, broke out because of the role of farm communities there lacking access to hard currency to pay the debts that they owed to merchants and creditors who suddenly or well started to demand that they be paid back in hard currency and also they could not pay taxes to the government. So many small subsistence farmers, people who lived off of their land without producing much surplus, ended up losing their lands and because they couldn't get enough hard currency to pay taxes with. And like the American Revolution repeating at a small scale, the farmers revolted. The American dollar was essentially then invented in the Coinage Act of 1792 as a local version of the then-abundant Spanish dollar. And here we need to talk about the word because that is kind of fascinating. Because a dollar is etymologically directly related to the German word Thaler, which in turn is a short form for Sankt Joachim's Thaler Guldenkroschen, um, or gold coin from St. Joachim's Valley. Uh, this term describes a specific set of coins minted in St. Joachimsthal, a town in Bohemia, where between 1520 and 1528, a lot of coins were minted. And because St. Joachimsthaler Guldenkroschen is a mouthful, even for Germans, the Germans first shortened, it, shortened uh, the term to Joachimsthaler and then eventually to Thaler. Um, and across the Holy, uh, the Holy Roman Empire, Thaler eventually came to describe just any large silver coin, which is confusing because Guldenkroschen describes something made of gold, but language doesn't always make perfect sense. Um, and this is how then the Spanish piece of eight became known as the Spanish Thaler, which over time in the English-speaking American colonies from the Caribbean to New England turned from Thaler into dollar, which, you know, etymologically, etymolog etymology, uh, words literally uh, as fascinating as all. The Spanish dollars were for a long time the dominant currency in the Americas. Between the founding of the Union and the end of the Civil War, American currency was kind of a mess too. Regional banks printed their own monies of various valuation and often shaky backing. This became especially pronounced an issue after the Second Bank of the United States was not renewed in 1810. That's kind of a whole other story that I, I just throw this in there. The Second Bank of the United States was not renewed in 1810. What does that even mean? I'm sorry, I don't have time to go into that. Um, so there was a lack of a national bank at the time and... Uh, uh, there, therefore, there was no national check on counterfeit currency. That's basically what that means. Uh, and counterfeiting was a huge problem in the 19th century. Uh, and uh, because, you know, like everybody made their, made their own monies, every state printed their own or a lot of states printed their own paper currency. And uh, that means that, you know, people can counterfeit a lot of that. Um and in uh, the 19th century Western territories, counterfeit money was then often uh, also the only currency that was readily available, which made counterfeiters in the West semi-legitimate mints, sometimes even after statehood in some places. Only the National Banking Act of 1863, which was enacted during the Civil War, essentially taxed these state currencies out of existence and introduced the green dollar bills we know today and effectively established the dollar as the only currency of the United States. 
And then due to the fall of uh, the other colonial empires and the emergence of the United States as the world's superpower, as well as due to American foreign policy maneuvering, especially in the Middle East, the American dollar became the world's largest reserve currency in the 20th century and the de facto currency of many countries where the local currencies look real, lack real value. Anyway, if there is a hell, I know money plays a big role there. If you want to read more about this, you should consult David Graeber's great book, uh, Debt, The First 5,000 Years. Um, and, uh, well, it's on the history of money and debt because money is basically manifested debt. And also uh, the book by uh, historian Stephen Meem, M-I-H-M, A Nation of Counterfeiters, which talks about the history of American money specifically. Uh, yeah, and let's let's see if I can get uh, if I can get started on the history of Zionism next week. That will be another another hellish topic. We had a guest on the show years ago, and I think his name was Oli Bjerg. I was just trying to find the interview, and I think it only might be at our Patreon page. And it was uh, the idea of the end. I think the name of the book was called The End of Money. And Hmm. uh, it was all about the idea of money and the concept of money and where we get the concept from. It was a fascinating interview and it just blew me away. And it's one of those interviews where I had no idea of what I was actually talking about until afterwards. (laughs) And I realized what the conversation was like. I, I was like, well, that was really an amazing interview or the guest was really incredible. And. I have no idea what I just said, so I had to go back and listen to it. It was really great, and I'm going to try to find that interview and share it with everybody. Also, I just wanted to mention to you, and I think I've mentioned this to you before, there's an award-winning documentary called The Everglades of the North, the story of the Grand Kankakee Marsh uh, in uh, northern and central Indiana, and there's a whole bit in it with uh, counterfeiting and doing it in the largest uh, lake in Indiana, which no longer exists, and they were doing it on an island in the middle of the lake, and they had a tunnel that went under the lake so they could bring horses back and forth with all the counterfeit money. It's wow. just one of the amazing parts of that. Uh, uh, locally produced in, in Indiana uh, documentary, huh. again, Everglades of the North, and you should check that out as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I will, I will. Great to hear your voice, sir, and I liked your disclaimer at the beginning. That is going to be some very uh, eggshell-worn area where you will be walking my friend so the best of luck to you (laughs) thank you all right take care all right yeah you too live from the united states where the press has the freedom to be propaganda this is hell dan who is our upcoming guest that we had booked prior to today's show we just had another guest confirmed but go ahead who is our upcoming guest uh, Guardian columnist George Monabo will return to discuss his recent article, The Cruel Fantasies of Well-Fed People, the astonishing story of how a movement's quest for rural simplicity drifted into a formula of mass death. I think I've had to look this up before. I think it's George Monbiot. I, I actually asked Christian, who is a fan, and he told me the right pronunciation. It's and I, well, he's British, so it's Monbiot. 
Manbiot. Oh, oh, okay, because he tried to uh, fix my pronunciation when we had him on the show in the past, and I could. Manbiot. All right, I'll have to work on that. Also, we uh, just prior to, uh, you know, just now, actually, when I went and checked my computer to see if we had any emails coming in uh, while uh, Sub was doing his bid on money, which was fantastic, uh, but we just got a confirmation. We have confirmed the Intercept's Nick Terse, who will return to discuss what will be a breaking story at the Intercept later this week based on a secret and previously unreported Pentagon investigation of a drone strike that killed a woman and her four-year-old daughter in Somalia. The story has yet to hit the press, has yet to hit the uh, online world, um, but we are going to be breaking the story with Nick on the show on Thursday. The Pentagon investigation which found no one at fault with the killing of those two civilians, offers an unprecedented window into how the Trump White House lifted important drone attack safeguards in Africa, leading to a higher civilian death count during the Trump years. According to Terse's reporting, just days after Trump entered the White House, AFRICOM reportedly asked for Somalia to be declared an area of active hostilities, which would allow the military to employ war zone targeting, despite the lack of a congressional declaration of war. Trump secretly issued rules of counterterrorism. Again, this is right after taking office. Direct action operations, including drone strikes in places like Somalia, that gave military commanders in the field more latitude in order to attack. The investigation is backed by interviews with more than 30 people, including the victim's relatives, a U.S. drone pilot and strike cell analyst, and a U.S. intelligence official with knowledge of the attack. There are also These are also the first civilian casualties ever admitted by the United States Africa Command, or AFRICOM. Dan, what's Jeff talking about during this week's Moment of Truth? Jeff violates copyrights and cultural appropriation guidelines to preserve an internet treasure. Thanks to Dan Kugler for producing. Thanks to Chris for shadowing Dan today. I am your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth radio show, live streaming podcast host Chuck Mertz. Vote for This Is Hell in the Chicago Reader Best of 2023 Readers Poll at chicagoreader.com slash best under the city life category where you can find uh, where you can vote for this is hell as best podcast and me chuck mertz as best radio dj that's chicagoreader.com slash best then go to city life and vote for this is hell as best podcast and me your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show live stream and podcast host chuck mertz as best radio DJ. Voting is only open until November 7th, so vote early, vote often for This Is Hell and Chuck Mertz at chicagoreader.com slash best under the City Life category for best podcast and best radio DJ. Live from the planet Earth where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. <laughs>